Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray, as always, and today I have on a guest um, that I have I spoke to, if it's still on the internet, the Global Energy Leaders Podcast, uh, many years ago, probably four or five years ago, I uh, interviewed this gentleman about his book called The Frackers, and he is, of course, Gregory Zuckerman. Today, we're not talking about the frackers. We, we might talk about the frackers, but that's not the point. We're talking about your book, The Man Who Solved the Market. Um, Gregory Zuckerman, it is good to speak to you after all these years. How's it going, sir? Great speaking to you. Um, I'm, I'm surviving. You know, we got a new world and just uh, making it through the day and being safe and healthy is an accomplishment. So thankfully, my family and I are too. I hope uh, the audience is as well. Yes. Uh, okay. So one of the things, um, I will bring up the frackers because it kind of ties up with this book. One of the things that impressed me about the frackers was the amount of people that you had to talk to because some of the stories that you told in that book, uh, and that book is near dear to my heart because I work in the oil field industry. And so, um, you know, it's just kind of, um, a lot of the stories that you told I was a part of, but not, not in them. They were just companies I worked for. Um, and, and, and the same thing with this book is you tell a lot of stories. You talk about, you know, smoke breaks or, uh, you know, this, this random meeting on a Thursday or, you know, this college class they had. And, you know, when you look at it with, with the frackers, it was a little bit easier for me, for me to kind of understand how you put that together because that's kind of our world. With this book, um, well, why don't you set up who the characters are, kind of what the book's about, and then kind of walk through, like, how did you go through the process of just putting together all of this information for this for this? I mean, I'm, I'm listening to it. I haven't read it. So, but it, this massive novel, uh, uh, book, uh, that, uh, from my perspective, at least, it sounds massive. I'm sure there's probably a lot you cut out. Yeah, thank you. So um, I um, thank you for appreciating the hard work. This was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. So um, it's a book about a group of really secretive mathematicians and scientists who set out to beat the market. And they're a very unlikely group. They're opinionated. They're stubborn. They're super smart, but they don't even really care that much about stocks and, and, and business. They want the challenge and they basically accomplish it. They create a firm that's the greatest investing firm in history. And along the way, and we're talking up 66% a year on average since 1988. And along the way, they just become pioneers in this world that we're all living in today. Um, predictive algorithms, you know, you go on Amazon, you go on Netflix, it's all they're they're guessing what what you're going to do next that's all these predictive algorithms that really govern our lives in a lot of ways the defense of our country is governed by some of the stuff they're predictive models mathematical models and this is what these gentlemen that's mostly men and that i write about all set out to do but we're talking like in the 1980s when no one was talking about any of this before facebook and everything so in a lot of ways they're pioneers of our world today and you know, talk about AI and things like that. They were doing that again in the 1980s. And it's a, it's a group of characters. Um, there's a guy, Jim Simons, who's uh, one of the greatest geometers over the past 50, 100 years, a really well-established mathematician. But he's a character. He's, a, uh, he's, been, he's 82 and he smokes like a chimney still. Uh, he drinks, he's funny, he's a witty guy and a bunch of other kind of unusual characters along with them, some of whom have really changed the country. There's a guy, Bob Mercer, who um, is probably as important as anybody else in putting Donald Trump in office. So to your question, so I, A, I had to get people to talk because they're really secretive, and then B, I had to figure out how to do it in a way that people will read it. So I, I, I tried, my, my, my strategy is kind of 
spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So I'm, I'm trying to get these pretty important themes, but I want you to keep turning those pages. So I do it through the people and I look for stories and I'm a storyteller. So that's kind of my strategy. So on the smoking deal real quick, um, there's a story in there where, um, you know, this guy's a mathematical whiz <laughs> and they're like, how do you justify smoking? And he goes, well, at a certain age, basically, if you make it to this point, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and we said it, I was like, okay, is he being serious because he, he's a mathematical whiz or is he just like one of those kind of Warren Buffett contradictory statements? Like I can't really justify it, but I'm doing it anyways. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm not sure myself, frankly, and I'm not sure even his friends or he even knows, you know, he'll give a justification, but he, I think it's more, he's a, he's an addict. Sometimes yeah. he'll do an e-cigarette <laughs> or two, but it is the case that supposedly there's some small, small, small percentage of people that smoking doesn't affect. I mean, don't try it at home kind of thing, but yeah, he's 82, and it's pretty healthy for a guy who's 82, frankly. He's sharp, uh, uh, sharp intellectually. Um, he, he hikes with younger people in his foundation now. So he's an unusual guy in a lot of ways. Yeah, so let's go back to kind of the, the, kind of the foundation maybe of, of this group. Um, you mentioned um, you know, the kind of math whizzes, and you talk about, talk about research. They, if I remember correctly, I can't remember exactly how it's put, but they go through the old – um, Dow Jones logs and started looking through all that stuff. And uh, that not only were they smart, they were really dedicated researchers themselves that were, um, you know, it's one thing to say, Hey, I want to go try to try a new stock tick, uh, the trick, but, but they really <laughs> took that to the next level and they didn't have a Mac or a, or a big PC, <laughs> as you said, in yeah. the eighties. And so kind of walk us through maybe obviously um, not everything they did, but just, what was the world like and, and why was it so cutting edge? Because it, it sounded very uh, laborious what they did um, for, the, for what they were doing back in their day, at least. Yeah. So back then we're talking, uh, this guy, Jim Simon started, uh, uh, gave up the world of academia, gave up mathematics and said, I'm going to try to beat the market. And that's like 1978. And from 1978 to about 1990, they struggled. They had difficulties and they weren't figured, they weren't sure like what approach to use. He's a math guy but you know he tried it other ways too he tried kind of conventional picking up the newspaper and predicting where the economy is going to go and um silver and gold and that kind of stuff sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't it was hard on him he made some money but just physically he, he had stomach uh pain because the way he describes it when i made money i felt like a hero and when i lost money i felt like a dope and we could all relate to that i think or at least i can relate to that you know when you're investing traditionally with the traditional methods you, you feel super smart when you make a lot of money you feel like an idiot when you blow it and it was hard on him physically and he said you know what i'm going to try a different method and most people at the time were doing i guess one of two approaches to the market they were saying all right let's learn about a business let's try the product out let's talk to customers you know like peter lynch used to do that kind of approach um, and people still do today. You know, I like this product. My wife likes it. I'm going to buy the stock. And then the other approach is sort of, hey, the market's a random walk. I can't beat it. I'm not even going to try. I'll ind get an index fund, something like that. And, and Simon said, yeah, no, I think there's some patterns to this market. And that's sort of what he did for a living. So before, um, he spent some time as a code breaker for the government fighting the, uh, the, the Russians in, in the Cold War. And, and basically, he's looking for patterns. When you're a code breaker, you're looking for patterns. And he figured there's some, he thought there's some patterns in the market. 
that people weren't appreciating. So sometimes they're short-term patterns, sometimes they're long-term patterns. And he said, I'm going to figure out how to find those patterns. I'm going to look for a mathematical um, patterns, things that, that repeat. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a mathematical model to try to figure it out. And as you suggest, the way they did that was getting as much data as possible. This is a time when no one really cared about data. And today, everything is about data. But then they said, all right, we're going to buy everything or we're not even going to buy it. People were giving it away back then. They'd go down to like the Federal Reserve's office, lower Manhattan, and just writing stuff down and collecting it when no one else was. And they figured if we had more data and better data, more accurate data than anybody else, we'll pipe it into this, um, pump it into this computer model and it'll tell us what to do. One of the things that, and, you, and, and this is kind of goes to a broader question because you've got sports books and we'll link to all that stuff. Um, the Frackers, which covers Aubrey McClendon and all the guys from that industry. And of course, these guys, one of the things that, that I've often wondered is um, you'll see a meme or a story about the guy who persevered and, you know, he makes it to the top. I've always wondered, well, how many guys did the same thing, but they just weren't talented enough. Like they, they, they tried. So in this case, what they were doing, um, they, these guys were super smart, but there's a lot of super smart guys out there. Was it, how much of it was luck? How much of it was, no, they really just had a, an idea. It was the right time, the right place, uh, skill. How would you balance that out? Because successful people on some level, Le LeBron James, okay, he's six foot eight. I'm five foot eleven. <laughs> you know, he has a lot, but there's a lot of six foot eight guys who aren't as good as he is. So he's he's extremely talented, extremely hardworking, and there's something that just makes him even better than all the other six foot eight guys. So how, in this case, how do you balance that out? It's a great question. So I will do interviews. I give speeches around the country, and people always want to hear what are the lessons from Jim Simons and his colleagues. What can I learn from it? And also from, like you said, from all my books, you know, I write about success stories to a large extent. Uh, the Greatest Trade Ever is my first book. It's about some individuals, some investors who anticipated the 2008 meltdown. The frackers is people that changed the world. When everyone said, all the experts said they couldn't do it. We can't find oil and gas in America anymore. Go offshore, go, you know, Africa, Asia, give up on America. These guys ignored the experts and figured it out. And once again, yeah, my new book, is about people that ignore the experts. They all say you can't beat the market or you can't do it with this math approach and they did it. So, you know, what are the lessons? And it's a really great point. Like I can give you, I'm, I'm gonna give you some commonalities, some lessons. There are some that I've derived, but you also have to keep in mind that I, Greg Zuckerman, I write about the winners. So it's a self-selecting group. And I think <laughs> it's always in the back of my mind that, okay, yes, these people pulled it off. So what are the lessons? Okay, let's let's look for what are the lessons. But in the back of your mind, you're like for every one of every Jim Simons, there are ten other math geniuses who couldn't figure it out. Right. So you okay, so part of it is Jim Simons has some unique attributes. I'm gonna get into them for a second. But before I do, yes, you have to acknowledge there's good luck involved. There's good you need good fortune, you need mm -hmm. all that, you need health. Um, so Jim Simons in his professional life has been really lucky, but in his personal life has suffered time and time again. He has two sons that died tragically. Mm -hmm. So he had really good luck when it came to his professional life and had awful luck in his personal life. I mean, he's got you know a stable marriage and a happy uh, life right now. So um, thank God some things in his life are, are, are good. But yeah, you need good luck in life. And, and to that point, 
1996, they could not figure out how to, how to trade stocks. They figured out bonds. They figured out futures, commodities, currencies. They could not figure out stocks. And you say to yourself, well, who cares? They made a lot of money with the other stuff. And it's true. But Simons wanted to be a billionaire. And you couldn't really make all that much unless you were in stocks. Stocks is a bigger market. It's more liquid. You can manage more money. They had to figure out stocks. And he gave his guys years, and they couldn't. And he said, I'll give you six more months to figure it out. And then... And, and they still couldn't. So he almost pulled the plug and it, and it wouldn't have worked. And, and he'd go down into history as, you know, a good investor, but not, not like he is today, the most successful modern finance. And then lo and behold, they found a glitch. They had messed something up. Basically, there was a number in their system that wasn't updating. It was an S&P 500 number that was static, that wasn't updating from a few years earlier. And it should have been updating. And one of their just programmer guys, this guy, David Magerman, figured it out and he goes to his bosses this guy bob mercer is like uh, bob i think you messed something up here and then this number is not updating and magman was right and mercer to his credit didn't blow him off didn't say oh you know pipe down there junior so um had this guy magman not figured out this glitch yeah maybe they wouldn't have figured it all out they would have made all these billions and billions i mean jim simons is worth 25 billion dollars today so that goes to your point that you need the good luck too um and, but there are some lessons, I think. So Simon's, he, he can do both sides. He's got like both talents, both sides of the brain. He's a mathematician. He's a um, super smart guy, but he also understands people. He understands how to motivate people, how to hire people. And, and I think they do motivate and hire and work together in a very unique way. So I think there's a lesson there too. Yeah. And the other thing I said, uh, we had on uh, Roland Lazenby the other day talking about Michael Jordan. And I said, you know, if I was, we got LeBron for a second. I said, you know, if I was LeBron James, we're basically the same age. And I had a $90 million shoe contract at the age of 18. I probably, I would have showed up for practice. I'd have showed up for the games and I would have go down as the biggest bust in the history of the NBA. There's something about these people who, when they make this much money, they, they keep going. And I know today people, you know, whether, you know, wherever you come on Bezos and Gates and Buffett, there is something that, that we, that, that, that normal people kind of miss and that, that these people are so driven that they have, unlimited dollars more or less and they keep going like i ryan ray do not have that kind of drive i, I don't yeah. think i do uh, maybe yeah, maybe yeah, i'd go, yeah, go buy an island and yeah. be like done guys yeah it, it, that's part of it but also just getting there so like i wrote these two books with my sons about sports stars who overcame challenges in their youth and we did it to sort of inspire kids with their own dealing with their own challenges and it could be you know, something you see on the outside, but it could be something on the inside. And that's our contention that everybody's got some difference. So it could be a physical difference. And, you know, in our, in our book, there's racism, there's abuse, there's poverty, there's all kinds of stuff. So, um, so when you look at like a Steph Curry, like he grew up well to do his, his father was a basketball player and you say to yourself, okay, he's, he's, he's unbelievable. His, his father's a, was an NBA player. So he's already got the genes, but it takes so much more than that. And if you, we wrote, we spoke to Steph and, and he talks about all the setbacks he's had and how he had to basically rework his whole shot and he was injury prone and the, the countless hours he, he spent dribbling weird, weird kind of dribbling um, exercises where he took two different size balls and was dribbling at the same time with the, with his eyes closed um, all kinds of, and, and you talk about LeBron. Yeah. He's unbelievably talented, obviously, but like you said, you go to a play pickup in New York city, you get other people, maybe not as talented, but pretty talented guys who just never put it all together. And LeBron's got this unique ability to deal with setbacks. So um, when he was young, 
by the time he was 12, I think his, he and his mother had moved homes, I think nine times. And he literally had a bag by his bed every night, just ready to go in case his mother said, all right, we got to go. And he focused on the positive, not the negative in life. Yeah. His father wasn't around and he really didn't have much money and all this kind of stuff, but he focused on the fact that he had a loving mother. And so that ability to focus on the positive is really, really important. And there's some common trait there and, and dealing with setbacks, just being able to deal with the bad stuff in life. And the, all these people really, um, I, I wrote this book to talk to them, to figure out how to do it so I can learn myself and teach my kids and mm -hmm. teach other kids. Yeah. And so one of the things that, um, I don't know when it was, I was, um, it was during the time of the frackers. So I was probably 21, 22, 23, something there. And I remember, I don't know, one day I had a set down, I was just thinking, and I, I realized um, we think Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, whoever, Steve Jobs, he was alive back then. And, and it kind of came to me uh, that, wait, wait, we, 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 we say those names, but it's really a lot more than those names. Yeah. Um, so a story like this is really a lot. You got the, the main guy on the cover, but it's really uh, a lot more. And all those, all these people, they all have something in common where they're, they may be great, but they really have to have a team. And, um, and that's kind of a hard thing for us to balance as well is because, it's we want to give the praise to you know person a who's the leader and they deserve the lion's share but they really are dependent on that random programmer who walks in who found the code or or a, a partner who adds something else to them yeah so like some people will criticize my books they'll say well greg jim simon you read the book called the man who solved the market but your book is all about a group of it's about a group of people and even like my first book it's about the headline, uh, it's, it's the greatest trade ever. And the subtitle is how John Paulson to make $20 billion over two years. But then the book is all about his team and John and, and the frackers. Listen, one of the reasons I wrote the frackers is to give a little bit of recognition and limelight to the landmen, to the, 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 the guys working with the Aubrey McClendons and, and the Harold Hams, because there's a whole team, like you said, and um, they have to work together and they all contribute. Mm -hmm. And I find that even actually more interesting just as a reader, just how, how the teams work together and the contributions of, of each of the different people. And like you said, yeah, Jim Simons could not have done this by himself. And I don't want to suggest anything like that. Yeah. No, no, the, the book does a great job, it, it, but it, it's, it's from, it's, it's interesting from the outside perspective. Um, you know, if you're going to write a book or a documentary or whatever, it's easier to say yeah. uh, Michael Jordan, Jim Simons, you know, whoever, than to say the team who solved Wall Street. It's like team, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know, you know. And so, but but the reality is, we we just as normal everyday folk, we kind of have a hard time just balancing that out. And Buffett's a genius, but there's more to it than that. I agree, I agree, and um, right, it's easy to latch on to the idea that there's someone individual who does it all, but um. You know, it's like Steve Jobs too. Steve Jobs was a leader and he inspired people. He didn't come up with a lot of the advances. So then that's what Jim Simons was about too. So it's important to remember. So one of the things I've heard you say in other interviews is how hard it was to get people to talk to you about this book. And I don't want to misquote you, but I want to, I think I heard you say that you almost gave up on the project. Is that true? Yeah, for a long time. I mean, I didn't even um, cash the check for a long time they give you an advance as, a, as an author and i wanted the ability to give it back if i ca if i cash the check if i cash the check then uh i'd spend it <laughs> and if i spent it i wouldn't be able to give it back so i didn't want to cash that check because i wasn't sure 
I get enough people to talk. Yeah, they really are the most secretive firm Wall Street's ever seen. And, and, and was it just, this kind of goes to my question, not necessarily the, the secret sauce, but you talk about people who are successful. Obviously, you're a successful author. Um, is this, for, for you, is it perseverance? Is it, have you learned how to persuade people? Is it some, what, 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 were, what allowed you to be the person to write this book? Well, I, I tend to collect compromising photos of people. <laughs> okay. That works. And then I just blackmail them. That's really my secret. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, part of it is just not taking no for an answer. And sometimes people won't talk to you. But more often than not, if you show them you're serious about the topic, if you show them you're, you, you don't want to make a mistake, you're taking it seriously, and and you keep coming at them and you keep and, and you kind of get people around them in their world saying, oh, God, I just got off the phone with Zuckerman and he spent two hours talking to me. You should probably talk to him. Eventually, you wear, not everybody down, you wear most people down. And then partly, like I say, you just show them you're, you're taking this seriously. You're not trying to get someone. A lot of people just worry that you're coming at it. You know, the media has a bad rap today. So people think that we're out to get you. And often, we're, we're not. most of the time, we're not. Well, I, so I haven't read uh, the, the your first book that you mentioned in The Greatest Trade Ever, but I have gone through The Frackers, and I felt like The Frackers, um, you know, as, again, something near, near you know, this this world is not near dear to my heart, um, but The Frackers was. It, I felt like the story you told was 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 very well balanced. Um, uh, I, if I remember, you said that there were some folks that may or that weren't exactly happy with what they what was portrayed about them in the book, but but I remember reading it, going, okay, yeah, this is fair. Um, I don't remember every nook and cranny but it, it it wasn't a hit job it didn't seem and it, it didn't seem like you were trying to sugarcoat one thing or or hide something else it felt like you you even told a story at the end of the book about uh someone i think in south dakota, not south dakota in north dakota maybe and kind of how the oil field was impacting their life i can't remember what, where it was but anyways it was just kind of some regular folk like like me and you and just and, and i thought wow that's a, that was kind of a good touch um as a reporter an author a writer it would seem that doing stuff like that probably helps you when you go to do a project like this, because you kind of have the credence of you're not out and playing gotcha journalism. So you kind of have the the foundation of you can trust me and I have a litany of work that, that goes to prove it as well. Those are interesting points. So let me, I'll make two points. Uh, I'll respond in two ways. Yes, it does help me uh, that the books have done well and they're generally balanced books. I believe anyway, I'm, you know, I'm subjective, but I believe so. And people view it as such generally. Mm -hmm. um but um yeah so it's so it it helps to have have done those that is true the 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 unusual thing the surprising thing is how many of my main characters hate my books afterwards even though (laughs) even if people around them like them so harold ham you know harold ham so harold ham sent me the a nasty email after the book came out after the frackers came out and he called me in the email he said, Mr. Sucker Man. And <laughs> I said, Harold, I'm sure this is just Freudian. You didn't mean to insult me. But you know what? Um, it's scary that um, when you get, and it's not just, it's an energy, it's in business, finance, Wall Street. When you become really wealthy and successful, you end up having just yes men around you and, yeah. and, and yes women around you. And 
you react poorly often, harshly, when there's a book that sort of shows your foibles too and where you came from. So to me, Harold Hamm, and here we are talking about the, the frackers, not the man of the market, but the, the uh, Harold Hamm came from nothing. He had very little education, didn't know anything about uh, producing um, oil and gas, wasn't an engineer, etc. And yet he became one of the guys to change this country and he found so much oil and gas and he made a lot of embarrassing mistakes along the way. But to me, that's endearing. That's a guy who came from nothing and proved all the naysayers. They had it wrong, but he and other people like him, they'll read that and they'll be like, why, why are you writing that about when I was young? And what about writing that when I when it was early in the business and the mistakes I made and the embarrassing stuff. And to me, that just makes it's more endearing. I can relate to it as a reader. I can relate to a guy who messed up time and time again and then figured it out. You know, we're all looking for that. I don't know. I'm looking for inspiration. And to me, that's inspiring. But you'd be surprised how many of those main characters and John Paulson. I wrote my first book about this guy, John Paulson. The book is literally called The Greatest Trade Ever. And he put out a press release right after the book condemning the book. So later on, he said, oh, Greg, I reread it. And yeah, thank you for writing it and blah, blah, blah. But you'd be surprised how many of these people in, in positions of power just are so sensitive. I mean, look at our president. I mean, mm -hmm. my God, he's become the president of the United States. And I'm not saying I love him or I hate him or I hate him or love him. I'm just saying the guy is really sensitive and he didn't, doesn't need to be. He's accomplished so much. So um, anyway, getting to your point. So you would think it would help me. And sometimes it does um, <laughs> with the next characters, but not. But um, also to your point about, you know, you said, well, you, I think maybe you, you were suggesting you were a little bit surprised maybe that it was as balanced as it is. You know, we all have these stereotypes in life. Like, I, I, so a lot of the people were a little hesitant to talk to me. I'm an East Coast guy. I'm this Jewish kid in New York. I mean, I live in New Jersey, but I grew up on the East Coast in Providence. So, you know, people have a stereotype. Oh, you know, he's going to be a certain way. And we on the East Coast have a stereotype of the rest of the country. And one of the greatest things about writing the Fractors was I got to travel the country. I went to little towns right. in Oklahoma and they couldn't have been nicer to me. And they embraced me. And, you know, just to be like personal, I'm a religious Jewish guy and I was a little worried. I keep kosher and all that. And people could not have been nicer. And they, you know, religious people, they embrace other people with religion. And frankly, that was eye-opening to me. And, you know, we don't have enough of that. We don't have enough of East Coast people getting to know people in the South and, and out west in, in, in the heartland of the country and vice versa. And, you know, we're all Americans. And it was, it's so sad. It's really sad to me how divided we are as a country. We have much more in common than, than you would think. We just got to get to know each other a little bit. Right. And so one of the things, the reason we like to bring on um, authors and biographers, especially onto this show is because our, our newsletter covers geopolitical stuff and, uh, on some level, we kind of we kind of uh, take pop shots at the media when we think they're kind of off. But one of the things that we keep saying over and over again is that it's it's nuance. There's so many nuances, and so as you kind of when you're telling all that there, you're kind of nuancing. Well, I'm this, and and I'm here, and that means that when, when and when you write a story like this one, when I was talking earlier about the smoking story or the the time that they're at the lunch in I think it was California, maybe in the West Coast, those are the type of nuances as a reader I really appreciate because it shows that. Um, that you're actually putting in the work to try to balance the story out. You know, I, again, I don't know these guys. I don't know anything about them other than your book. So I can't say how balanced it is, it is or isn't, but it does come off as a really balanced approach. And those are the things that I really appreciate is that, that there are those, those subtleties, those stories that are in there. And it's like, okay, huh? 
that kind of adds a little flavor. The smoking story about, you know, if you make it, you know, it, it kind of, it, it adds to this person's, this character in the story, it adds something to them. And so um, those are the things that I find as a reader that are really important because it, it's not, you know, stale facts. It's wait, this guy said this. I wonder what he, I wonder what he meant when he said it, which is why I asked you if he was being serious or not, because you, because now he's a human being. That's what human yeah. beings say, right? Yeah, I try to humanize them, and I find people generally to be interesting. You plot me down like at a barbecue next to a dentist or an accountant, and I bet you he's got some interesting story or she's got some interesting story. They overcame something. They had some setback. Maybe it was a health issue. You know, mm-hmm. again, that gets back to the whole stereotyping. You know, we all it's, – it's just lazy thinking, and you get to know people. There's stuff we can relate to. We all have dealt with stuff – we have kids or we're children of someone we've all gone through. I don't know. My father died of cancer. I'm sure somebody's out there has had similar kind of stuff. So I don't care where you're on the political spectrum, liberal, progressive, conservative, big Trump fan. There's a lot more in common than not. And yeah, I try to humanize them. But the other thing is I'm a little different than a lot of authors. A lot of authors want some black and white character, a hero or some villain. And, and, and you know, there are a lot of best-selling books like that I'm thinking of and and nonfiction too. And they sort of, you know, smooth off the corners. And I'm not like that because I don't believe in that kind of thing. I think we're all kind of gray and we're all struggling in the middle there somewhere trying to be better as people. And um, so I try to bring that out. And I've had a lot of people come to me and say, Greg, you know, I like the book, but I just don't know if I like the characters. I'm not sure. And that's fine. It's okay. I don't mind you coming away, not, loving each of my characters. I, I just write it as it is. And, and, I, and that's how we all are. You know, not everyone loves me. Some people like me a little bit. Some people don't, I, you know, <laughs> we're all gray somehow. We're trying to get, be as best people we can be, I think. No, that, no. But, uh, so, I mean, there's obviously some people who are, um, you know, a lot easier to portray than others on how good or bad they are. But, but for a lot of us, like you say, they're, they're, we're, we're very gray. Uh, I remember going through a John Adams biography and some of the things that he would do, I'd be like, I wonder why he's doing that. And the author never really kind of got into it. You're like, I wonder, like, like mm. it, it was insignificant things. Like, you know, he's leaving his wife behind for six months or a year or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah. I have a hard time doing that. And so, yeah. uh, and, and so I find that those are the types of biographies I enjoy. And, and that's why I like reading your stuff is because those kind of, you don't really weigh in on whether or not you think that's um, the right thing for, uh, you know, Simon's and his team to do. It's, it's what they did. And it's up for me to then, contemplate and to think through that and that's the those are the things that i as a reader i appreciate and so that's good listen there are different kinds of readers so sure. that's sort of how they teach us at the wall street journal we try on the new side we just try to play down the middle and some people will take issue with that you know you can't play both sides you're a little too wishy-washy and i hear that and you know some of our competitors um are taking more of a stance on news today we don't believe in that. That's sort of how I was taught. I want to, I respect my reader. You know what? Let them judge. I'm going to give you the facts to the extent I can. Listen, do I have a, uh, am I going to influence the reader to some extent? Sure. But I, I, I try not to, to say, I, I try to tell the story and you can decide if you like the person or not. What was the story that you left out of the book you wish you would have included now? You know, people ask me that. I leave it all on the playing field. <laughs> you know what? I, I kill myself. And, and it, there's stuff I've left off, but it's probably stuff that like legally I'm not unsure yeah. on, right. on, on certain grounds and I want to be careful. Um, 
yeah, the, 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 I, I try to leave it all on the, on the playing field um, when I do these things. What was the biggest thing that changed? So obviously uh, we were talking a little bit offline. You said, I'm, lo I'm always looking for a story. So somehow you've uh, obviously worked for the Wall Street Journal. So you heard about these guys. Uh, you said it's worth, it's worth writing a book about. Um, by the time you were done and you published the book, was there anything or something that really, when you started the process, you didn't expect or you found out or uh, just completely changed your perception of what, what, uh, what you thought you were going to be writing about? Well, I guess two things. I and mean, it goes back to that whole stereotyping thing. So I had a stereotype of math math guys and i thought they were boring it'd be boring um analytical you know intellectual types and i had no clue i was thrilled to find all the drama behind the scenes the backbiting the jealousies the um the focus on money the um focus on credit um the insecurities the insecurities so these guys are among the most impressive uh, people have ever traded uh, their math geniuses etc but they've got the insecurities that you know you and i have so mm -hmm. i all that human drama i was thrilled to find i was hoping um, and that's sort of when i made the decision to write the book is when i went out to california and talked to some people that worked with simons back in the day in like the 70s and 80s and they were just characters interesting colorful unusual people and i'm like that's what I, that's what i need in my book now i know i i know guarantee that i would get everything i needed that people would open up to me people inside the firm today would talk to me and I, so i was losing sleep you should hear my wife you know i would whine to her and i'm like i don't know if i can do this thing but at least i had some early good characters and that's what uh, i i look for um i i need, I need those those individuals and that yeah that's when i when i know that, that's what i'm i'm looking for um and in terms of the other surprise is just how long it took them to figure out the market. My fear was that, okay, they're up 66% a year from 1988. Well, what, what, what's the obstacle here? What's the drama? What, what, you need some of that. But I was surprised by how difficult it was, believe it or not, for them to, to get to that point. So you mentioned something earlier I want to circle back around to. You mentioned Trump um, and, you know, that, that, these guys, or this guy in particular, I'll tell the story, is, is so influential while Trump's in the White House now. And I've heard you on some other interviews kind of talk about that, but unpack why you said that earlier and, um, and you know, kind of your thesis behind that. Yes, yeah, so in the summer of 2016, the video came out with Trump uh, and Billy Bush, um, uh, the Billy Bush video where he tells Billy Bush some inappropriate stuff about women and what he did to women. And at that point, he was sort of down and out um, in terms of having a shot at winning the White House, who was trailing in the polls by a ton. And Bob Mercer, one of the key guys in my book, my book, who was the co-CEO of Renaissance, this firm, uh, this big hedge fund we're, we're talking about, he was a huge Trump supporter. He and his daughter, Rebecca, and they got in touch with Trump and Rebecca went to talk to Trump and said, the only way, and this is at some party out in Long Island, the only way you're going to be able to turn this thing around, let's turn this campaign around, is if you you put two people at the helm of your campaign. And that was Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. And Trump listened, and they turned that campaign around. You can love them or hate them, but they stabilized that Trump campaign. And Trump has um, publicly given Bob Mercer, right after the, the election, he gave 
Mercer credit for saving that campaign. So yeah, were it not for Bob Mercer, were it not for this hedge fund I write about, I don't know if we'd have Donald Trump in the office. Which is interesting because here you go back to these guys who solved Wall Street. They made all this money. And then in 2016, it manifests itself in a unique yeah. way that, that had nothing to do with what they were trying to do back in right. the 80s. And, and, and those are the types of connections and stuff that you see um, through, throughout these kind of stories. Oh, it's that are, fascinating. Are fascinating. Yeah, the unintended consequences. And the, the other irony is that Jim Simons is a liberal-leaning guy who was a big Hillary supporter. So had he not started this firm, maybe Donald Trump wouldn't have been in office, and yet he was a big <laughs> – uh, because of Bob Mercer and all the money that he made at the firm, being a billionaire. And yet he was a, a Trump, I, I, um, Jim Simons was a big Hillary supporter. So yeah, you don't know what, what's going to happen, these unintended consequences. But there's also a lesson in that they, even though they, they don't agree politically, the people within the firm work really well together. And there's a lesson there for the nation too. Um, we all have, I mean, I, I think I could say in our family, we've got people on both sides of the spectrum more than ever. You've got, you know, people on the right, people on the left. And uh, yeah, the fact that they are able to work together nonetheless and respect each other is a nice model for us all. So one of the, one of the stories um, that, that, that almost kind of derailed these guys was during the housing crisis in 2008. Um, and we don't have to get into all the particulars of the housing crisis, but I was, I was kind of stunned um, the way the story kind of unfolded was they were really concerned about the bank calling their, uh, their margin calls, I guess it was they had in place. And, how I wasn't entirely clear, so I wanted you to kind of close up for it. But maybe just unpack that because it, it, it felt like, oh my goodness, like are, are, were they close to losing everything, or was it they're just close to losing a lot of money? Obviously, for them, losing a lot of money could ultimately mean losing a lot of the clients. How, how tenuous of a situation was that? Because there was, it sounded like there was a, a lot of disagreement over, you know, should they stop the algorithms, keep the algorithms going, and, and so kind of unpack that on a, on a high level for us at least. Yeah. So. The market was collapsing, as we all recall, and they were losing a lot of money quickly. And when you use algorithms, when you don't use intuition and judgment to invest, in some ways it could be a little scarier, I think, because you're down, and they were down a few hundred million dollars in, in several of those mornings, but you don't know why. That's the crazy thing. You can try to figure it out. like. Let's say I own a lot of pharmaceutical stocks and and they get crushed and I'm and I'm losing a lot of money. It's it's awful, obviously, but at least I know why. Okay, pharmaceutical stocks are down for whatever reason. These guys, in a lot of ways, it's machine learning. The 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 system acts on its own. Now now they can figure it out and they've they've created the machine so and the algorithms so they understand they can figure out why it's acting like it is. But in some ways, the algorithms learn on their own it's machine learning so if it's working they allocate it, it automatically allocates more money to a certain strategy a certain trade but it takes them a little while to unpack it and today even more so than back then it's sort of running on its own their system so yeah it's scary for these guys and it was scary for them now let's keep it in context they, they weren't no i don't well i don't think they were going to call out there, there were some fears so they, they weren't really sure actually so they weren't really sure how bad it was i would, would they have collapsed it's not clear and it didn't last for that long, but it felt like it lasted a long, long time. Uh, yeah. And so what's interesting about that is, is obviously today going through the pandemic and stuff, I don't think a lot of people really understand uh, that even really successful businesses, um, you know, they kind of run on a certain way. And so, you know, they start incurring losses and it, it, it 
it can even cause them to panic. Not much less yeah. a, a small business guy like me. You take someone who's got that kind of money. It's it wasn't refreshing to hear them panic because in that regard, but it's like, okay, I can. <laughs> They got a lot more money than me. I feel better about my panicking, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of part of the reason I included it, too. We can all relate to that. We can all relate. It's also this, there's this really human, more, more human. So I'll give you a story, I don't know if you recall from the book. At the end of 2018, the market was collapsing. And Jim Simons, he's worth over $20 billion. And he's on vacation. And he sees what's happened with the market. And he calls his broker and he's like, hey, he's like scared. And should we buy protection here? And mm -hmm. he's nervous. Should we sell? Like you and I would, like a market panic. Right. And he's the last guy in the world that would have thought, not just because how wealthy he is, because he built his wealth on creating automated trading system, an automated trade system. And yet he's like anybody else. He gets nervous when, the, when he turns on CNBC and the market's going down 500 points. So uh yeah they're much more relatable individuals than i would have expected um okay let's see here there was a there's one more question i had about oh i know what it was yep <laughs> so with the stock market right now um you have studied the men who solve the market what advice would you give us <laughs> this is really how 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 do we solve the market it's really what we want to know now yeah that's a good question uh, the first is don't try to sell the market, <laughs> meaning you're going up against a firm. They have 90 PhDs wow. and 300 employees working around the clock, looking for little patterns in the market. So you don't want to compete with them. Yeah. So the first lesson is don't compete with them and don't do short-term trading. And that's what they do. They don't do high frequency. They hold stocks for a few days on average, maybe a month at the most. So you don't want to do competing with them. I know like my kids, I've got these uh, young boys or home college and they're playing the market on Robin hood. And, you know, I want, it, it, I think it'll, it'll be an exp a cheap lesson. They won't lose that much money and they'll learn. You can't really do that. You can't beat the market because you're going up against Jim Simons. Right. If you're going to do short-term trading, you're going up against the experts. So don't do that. If you're going to invest, have it be a longer term, process because Simons and those kinds of people don't trade long-term. They don't hold for a few years. So, you know, there might be some, and look for really where you have an edge and there are very few examples, but let's say you you're in an industry and you know about some new product and you have a good sense of whether it's going to work or, or not work. And you can be a longer term investor then yeah, um, invest. Um, but there are a few times, very few times when you're going to have an edge, even pros very few times. That's why the pros, fail to beat the market most of the time it's hard to get an edge so 20 years from now um we're, we're talking uh, and you're writing the follow-up to this book is there any any inclination of where the market you know so uh, so this is 30 years ago roughly we're talking about 35 years ago you kind of this the story was being formed uh 30 years from now is there any inclination of where the market gurus are pressing uh to kind of change it because once they've kind of developed this technology and, and you know, obviously these are under a lot of NDAs, but a lot of smart people, they read your book, they talk to people, stuff gets out. So they kind of lose their competitive advantage, which means that someone else will try to find a, a different way to make a new competitive advantage. Is there any, any insight from that you've got from your research, your time? And again, is it really for investing purposes, just out of curiosity, did you learn something about that uh, through the process of the book? 
Yeah, so I, I do think we're moving in that direction where it's hard for humans to compete with machines. People, the, some of the smartest people in the world of finance are trying to meld the two. And they do believe that man plus machine beats machine. And even the Simons people, I mean, there are people working on the algorithms and debating changes to the algorithms. They, they see themselves as, as man plus machine, but the machine being more important than the man. Mm -hmm. So it's machine helped by men and women sometimes too. Um, and that's sort of where things are going. It's just hard for the average person to digest so much. We've got more information flowing through than ever before. And it's being digested by these computers really quickly and accurately. So I, I do think we're going in that direction where uh, the traditional investing, um, the Peter Lynch approach is just becoming obsolete. And we're going to have more versions of what Renaissance is doing, which is why I wrote the book to understand what they're doing and where things are going. Listen, I don't know if they'll be, able, be the ones. It's, sure. it's, a, it's remarkable. They've continued to do well uh, all these years, but there'll be some version of Renaissance where it's some automated um, machine learning type system. I'm, I'm a big believer in systems more than ever. So I, I just think that decisions that are made with gut instinct, with intuition, uh, are, are more likely to, to be mistaken ones. You know, you look in the White House and, and the president talks about his, his gut instinct and you look in Congress and you look in um, important areas of our society where they're still using intuition and judgment, but I'm, I've become a much bigger believer in having a system. That doesn't mean everything has to be automated, but you should have some system that you can rely on that you're not just winging it along the way, um, be it in business or in life, you know, uh, you, you write down some principles, not talking about like great value principles, but some, some system, some, so, something that you can rely on uh, data using data, you know, checking your, your decision-making process w with the data. I think we all have to become a little more sophisticated in our decision-making. So, couple things here we will let you go um first off i always appreciate hearing you or speaking with you the few times i have got to because uh, you're very passionate about your work and it comes through in your book um as someone who likes to read biographies um it shows not only when i hear you speak but also in your book um and i, I as a, someone who likes to learn about stuff like this or just biographies in general uh, i appreciate that so uh, thank you but also just maybe if you want to vent on the biography process or kind of, kind of walk through that to get a little, to maybe you don't get to talk about that much. I would I'd be happy to give you a minute or two to kind of speak about that because I, I, I don't think, um, you know, when I'm talking about a geopolitical topic or oil and gas or whatever it is I'm talking about, uh, you know, sometimes it's off the cuff, but if you're really trying to get in there and to try to tell something, man, it, it can get very hard and tedious and I've never done anything remotely close to what you have done. So if you want to, kind of just take a deep breath and take a victory lap on that process, feel free to, because as I do, I really do respect it and appreciate it. Well, not everyone does. So thank you because I tell a story, but it's, it's really hard. If people realize there were so many like 3 AMs where I'm down here, my basement in New Jersey and the family sleeping upstairs and it's cold out. There were, um, there was one time where, I'm like, oh, my kid, it was middle of the night, whatever. And I'm like, ah, oh, I hear something upstairs and then my kids left the TV. And I'm like, ah, oh, I can't believe they left the TV on. So I go to turn it off and it's not on. And I'm like, well, what was that? And I realized it's the birds getting up in the morning. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> and I just worked all night um, and I didn't realize it. And oh, wow. 
So it's a lot of work. And, and I literally, when I sent it in, I finished it, pressed the button. I literally remember I staggered upstairs and I said to my wife, I am done, 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 done. Last book I write, done. I cannot do it again. And of course, now I'm thinking about doing another one. It's a little bit like childbirth. I mean, I can't. I gave birth to a child, but I can imagine it's like childbirth. And you're like, I'm not yeah. doing this again. And then, you know, you do it again. Um, so, yeah, it's effing hard work. But you, like you said, I am, I like telling stories. I like digging in. It's also like a mystery. Like you're a detective in some ways putting pieces together like in a life so how it's how it started pr steps along the way why they became who they are what influenced them it's all like a i do feel like it's a puzzle and i like getting like big pieces nothing more fun than getting a huge big piece you hear some big story maybe it changed their life or didn't but just some piece of the puzzle and you get it and it's a great feeling um putting it all together and you, you never get to finish the puzzle because there's always mm -hmm. more stuff you can learn about these people and tell more about the story but at some point you got to pass it in but when you get those big pieces to, the, that you place in the puzzle it's a great feeling okay um i know you you said you're at the journal any uh no you said no 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 new book projects yet but um we're gonna link to obviously this book which is fantastic and just for the listeners uh, if you are curious there is a biography i read it's a kind of biography recently it was terrible i will let you i will recommend that one to you offline and let you go read that and go, go read some of his work and you will see the difference between good biography and bad biography um because it's they're not all they're not all created the, the um the same way and so uh or good nonfiction and bad nonfiction. we'll say that um and so uh but no i do appreciate it and i do appreciate the way that you you do present your story but so wall street journal um how often are you putting out stuff there what kind of stuff are you co covering for folks who might want to follow along at the journal sure i write about finance but i have also lately been writing a lot about the companies racing to find a vaccine a covid vaccine um i'm really fascinated by that process there are a lot of similarities with my books we'll see what happens a lot of interesting characters unlikely characters there's a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I wrote about recently that even a few months ago, it's called Moderna. I wrote a front page story for the journal. A few months ago, oh, yeah. I saw that, people yeah. were like mocking them and rolling their eyes about them. And they may be the ones to save us all. And there are a few of these kind of unlikely companies. We'll see what happens. So I'm following that process. And I would encourage people, reach out to me. Even if you got, you know, you read the book, one of my books, you've got constructive criticism. That's great too. I love to hear from people. I'm easy to find. I'm on Gregory.Zuckerman at WSJ.com uh, or I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Let me, I'd love to hear from people. Yes. You are always easy to get in touch with. And I've, I've always appreciated that about you. Um, I, I think I get notifications when you release a new book. And so I always send you a note, Hey, congratulations. You always, you always respond back. It's always, I always appreciate that. Anything else before we let you go? Um, oh yeah. You brought up the COVID-19 vaccine is, just handicapping here. Any chance there's a vaccine that's viable by the end of this year from your what you've looked at? I would I would say there's a forty to fifty percent chance there's a vaccine for healthcare workers. Okay. Um, only emergency use. So some people will start getting that. But I think by the by June of next year, there'll be at least one vaccine. That's my bet. I'll say there's a sixty to 70% chance there's at least one, maybe more than one that's out there and will help us all. So yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic, but you know, the, a lot of the technology is new technology and has been used before, which is kind of fascinating. So it, it may not work. Um, there, there's, 
but there's a lot of focus, really smart, successful people or interesting, smart people focus on this thing. So, you know, God willing, we'll have something good soon. Yep. The algorithms who solve COVID-19. Yeah. There's your next book. There you go. There you go. Thank, thank you so much for uh, your time. I know you're a busy guy and uh, best of luck with uh, your next book and look forward to reading it when it comes out. We'll link to that. As we mentioned, we got the frackers, we got the, the man who solved the market. Uh, you've got uh, one or two sports books. I can't remember. And then you've two got books. The, yeah, the rising above they're called. Yeah. Yes. And then you have uh, the greatest trade ever. That's all the books. Correct. Yep, that's we'll it. To, we'll link to that on Amazon. Uh, listeners, thank you so much. We'll be back next week. 